morning, everybody. Let me explain <clears throat> why I don't like two services. <laughs> um, one, just from my standpoint, I get off of my heart everything I feel I'm to say with everybody here. And then the second, when, when we go to two services, I feel that way in the morning service. Then the second service, I'm, my brain's, you know, not completely connected. Uh, and I'm thinking, did I say this in the first service? Do I need to repeat it here? What, you know, anyway. Um, so, but there are at least three reasons why we go to two services um, in the fall. One, um, we can't staff with one service. We can't get enough volunteers to staff the full-blown program we have for the kids. Um, because people, we, we have, fortunately, we have volunteers that are willing to volunteer Sunday after Sunday. It's good for the kids to have continuity. See the same face when they go back to children's church and the age-level classes. Um, and if they're going to always miss a service when we only have one, um, that doesn't work. Second, um, when we built, um, we were getting north of $8 million to make a sanctuary that we could always just have one service in. And you, we just couldn't do that. So we built assuming that we would... Um, have two services and we go to one in the summer because um, we're in Wyoming and you only have about three days of decent weather and so it's like rats leaving a sinking ship to camp or do something I think hunting doesn't bow season start or already did anyway um, then the third reason by far the most important reason is donuts um, <laughs> We have little kids who will turn away from church and the Lord because they were so severely disappointed um, when donuts quit. So um, anyway, it's fine. Um, and it, it, it all works out. I want us to look today. We'll close, by the way, our service today with um, the Lord's Supper. And I want to remind you, probably will again, but um, here we practice what's called open communion. You do not have to be um, a part of this congregation, a member, or whatever, to um, take communion with us. It's everyone who loves the Lord Jesus, puts their trust in Him, is welcome to partake with us. Jesus' words in Luke 15... He was, and people misuse this, but Jesus was being charged by the strict Jewish, strictest Jewish sect, um, the Pharisees. He was charged with being seen with and eating at the same table with sinners. 
um, tax collectors, people who worked for the Roman government taxing the Jews. They were particularly despised. And Jesus was kind to them, and he would accept their invitations to their homes, and he would eat with them. So he was coming under heavy censure because he was doing that. And so he gives us, in Luke 15, there's three parables here that he gave them, rebuking them for that attitude of having nothing to do with those who were away from God and who were lost and needed God. And he was, of course, willing to minister to them. The first one, the first parable is the lost sheep, the shepherd that had 90 or 100 and one of them was lost and he locked up the 99 and went out to found, find the one, the value of one heart. And the second one is the woman who had 10 pieces of silver and lost a coin and lit lamps to lighten things even more. Says she swept the whole house trying to find that coin, finally found it, told all of her neighbors, rejoiced over it. And then he gives us the parable that we're familiar with, probably one of the most familiar parables, is the parable of the prodigal son. And there's some good things here that I want us um, to look at. There, I only have seven points. So, don't, don't worry. Beginning in the 11th verse of chapter 15. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough to bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son." Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and has come to life again. He was lost, and has been found. And they began to celebrate. I'll end there 
not reading the rest about the attitude of the older son. But as we look at this passage, this is obviously not only a parable to those particular, that particular group that was criticizing Jesus for rubbing elbows with lost souls. But it's a picture of humanity. It's God's call to children who have rejected Him and walked away from Him, which is the whole human race. And it sets God's, gives us God's feelings to bring us back. It gives us the standard by which He will receive us back. The way back. There's much here that helps us see into the heart of God and His entire attitude toward us. In verse 12, the first thing we find there in verse 12 is rejection. I think, what this, I think we can speculate that the younger son, he's at home. He's got to pay attention to his dad. There's restrictions on being at home. And I think because he's younger, of course, he knew more than his older brother. And he obviously knew more than his dad. And so he is restricted. He wants to be free. He wants to get away. He wants to have the liberty to do what he wants to do. And that's been the picture of the human heart from Adam. God, basically, and God's laws, Psalm 2 describes the world, the lost, as considering God's laws handcuffs, bonds, chains, and in Psalm 2, it says they gather together and they take counsel together and they say, how can we get rid of these chains on us? God's laws. There's something fundamentally off already when a human being considers God's directions, which God a thousand times says, this is for your good. This is to keep you. This is to protect you. This is to spare you. This is to bless your life. Nah, it's handcuffs. Wrecks everything. Ruins our good time. This is the world's value system. God's restrictions are burdens. They're unnecessary. We need liberty. So there's a rejection here of the restrictions that this young man is living under. And he has a complete fantasy in his heart that if I can get away from all of this, I am going to have fullness of life. It's going to be great. It's just going to be wonderful. I'm not proud of this at all. And it was, a, it was not a long period of idiocy. 
Um, but I graduated, and everybody knows, you know, that I was born just about the time they discovered fire. And so, you know, I graduated in 1967 from high school, Eugene, Oregon, hotbed of burning down the ROTC building and burning up draft cards. And, you know, it was crazy. And <clears throat> after we graduated, there were a couple friends of ours, and we thought, you know what? We need to go, and I'm, again, I'm not, this is stupid. We're going to go to San Francisco. We're going to go down to San Francisco to Haight-Ashbury. Well, I didn't even know how to pronounce Haight-Ashbury. But, you know, because we were cool. And that was what we were going to do. Well, I don't know. It lasted a couple weeks or whatever. And I finally figured out, you know what? I need gas for my car. And so I'm going to have to keep my job washing windows at a high-rise condo downtown, um, which was not really climbing the social ladder. Um, but that's how stupid we are. Get away from restrictions, and boy, life will be great. Well, a second thing comes in, in 13 through 16. Not many days later, he gathered everything he had, went into a journey to a far country, squandered the whole thing. Now, Jewish sons, the older son always got double portion, if there's two sons, let's put it this way. The first son gets two-thirds, the younger son gets one-third. Because the eldest son always got a double portion. And they had the right to ask for it before the death of their father. In fact, it was fairly common. It would be seed money to go buy their own farm or whatever the story was. And so he asked his father, and that wasn't a horrible thing for him to do. It was customary. And his father tallied up what he was worth, liquidated some stuff, maybe, I don't know. But he ended up giving, it must have been in cash form, um, because he could gather it up and he could leave. So he does that. He squanders it all. When he'd spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and that person sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He would have eaten the pigs' food. He was so hungry. And then it was to say, nobody gave to him. It's apparent for a while it was party time. Squandered it with loose living. Partying. Carousing. Lots of friends. These are my buddies. I have had people tell me. I don't usually, I probably have said something in the past. Not much anymore because it doesn't do any good. But I've, I can't tell you the number of people have told me, I wouldn't mind, I don't mind going to hell. It's where my friends are. But there's no friendship where there isn't the grace of God. There's no even basic human kindness where there isn't the grace of God. Hell itself is nothing but the total indescribable absence of anything good, decent, kind, 
merciful. It's gone. It's gone. So the second thing we have, he rejected the restrictions and he took off. He squanders everything. No one gave him anything. Reality. Reality hit him. It took a while. We don't know how long it took him to go through his inheritance. But reality, the chickens came home to roost. And it's interesting here, the original language was that the farmer who hired him did not post something on an electronic billboard. I need a pig feeder. The language is very clear, describing the situation this once rich, young, pampered son was in, who was going to go out and experience new horizons. The language is very clear. He begged, he begged the farmer if he would please give him any job, I'll even feed your pigs. And the, the word is begged. That's the condition he was reduced to. Pleading with someone, and remember, he's Jewish. There was nothing more degrading than to be a hog farmer. I mean, you didn't do it. It was against Jewish law. Pigs were unclean animals. You had nothing to do with them. You were not to eat them. You weren't to touch their carcass. Nothing. Here he is from this lofty position, reality of going your own route, brought him to that level where he's begging and then wishing that he could eat pig slop. Now, I grew up in the city. All my relatives were farmers. And so when we'd go back to Indiana in the summer and make the rounds to the different farmers, you know, the chickens would quit laying and because we were city kids who drove them nuts. And we'd go milk the cows and we'd, oh, we thought that was great. But it was really fun to try to ride the pigs and it was really fun to go with our uncles or whoever, and the term, slop the pigs. He's begging to eat that. That's reality. How far from his fantasy in his mind of casting off God's handcuffs. I'm going to strike out on my own. There's, in verse 17, there's a return. At yet, it's not a return home. But the, here again, the language is very clear. It's a return to sanity. What does that tell us? It tells us that sin is moral insanity. It's insane to disobey God. It is insane to try to throw off God's restraints. It is crazy 
to go against God's plans for me because they're for my best. They're for my best. To reject that and to end up wanting to eat pig's food is insanity. It literally means here, and this New American Standard says, return to his senses. It's to return to a state of sanity after a period of insanity. That's what getting right with God is. Being born again is getting out of insanity. Who goes against their, bo- their, their best interests? That's crazy. So every one of us, when we rebel against God, we reject His way, and we try to build our own life, are certifiably crazy. We're crazy. And moral darkness produces mental, intellectual Emotional, psychological darkness. And Jesus said, you walk in the darkness and you don't even know what you're stumbling over. He had a return to sanity. It was God's work. Because I can't cure my own insanity. But God, in His mercy and goodness, gives us Flashes of insight when we're far from God, helping us see this is crazy. This is crazy. You're going the wrong way. I knew well for much of my life an evangelist that would come and preach for my father a lot, and then when I'd gotten the pastor, I would have him come and hold revival meetings and preach. Tremendous preacher, born, raised in Mississippi, character. But told about outside the little town where he pastored way back, he would be probably a hundred today. Pastored in a little rural Methodist church down in Mississippi and told how a flash flood came and washed out a bridge. And... The first person to come on that ended up going into the creek and managed to survive and clambered up the bank. And he described in detail this driver soaking wet, some injuries, trying to stand, it's pitch black at night, standing in the middle of this two-lane road, trying vainly to flag down people as they honked, swerved around him, shook their fists, whatever, and went around a curve and went went off of where the bridge used to be. And car after car went by. Several perished. And he likened that to God standing in the road. Don't stop. Don't go this way. There's danger. 
I'm going anyway. I know better than you do. That's insanity. God <clears throat> gave him a flash of insight and brought him back. And then something that I think is, to me, is touching. 18 and 19. He said, I am going to get up and go to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. You know, there's something here that is interesting. I don't know how long he'd been gone. I think it's clear. I don't think it's much speculation to say that he was probably pretty um, dismissive with his father. And he didn't, yeah, he didn't care. And I'm going to take what money I've got coming to me, and I'm leaving. But somehow, when he came to himself, he remembered what his father was like, and that his father never changed. He's assuming, and he's right, but he's assuming, I've got a place to go. When we wander from God, somehow God keeps alive in our hearts and in our minds. There's a place to go. And He's the same. And He hasn't changed one bit. He's the same. I got somewhere for refuge. There's hope. This is the foundation of our faith in God. I am the Lord. I change not. Now, <clears throat> when we're away from God, we're resisting God, we don't like that thought. Even sometimes, we're tempted to believe, man, I wish God would let up on me with this trial as a Christian. Things we're going through. Things we face. And we're hoping. <clears throat> I wish God had changed. <laughs> that ain't going to happen. <laughs> Both good and what He permits to come into our lives. James said, Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variableness nor shadow of turning. This is security. This is total security. God never changes. Now that means he won't ease up on stuff he said is wrong. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't go by quote the new discoveries of science. I didn't realize that people were born like that, says God. I guess I'm going to have to revoke some of the commandments I gave. Didn't realize it. No. It isn't going to happen. But for those of us sometimes whose, whose grip on hanging on by tying a knot on the end of the rope and hanging on thinking, man, alive. Lord, will this ever get over? He never changes. He's always good. Whenever we flee back to Him, He's there. He's the same. Somehow this man, this son, who had basically rejected what his father told him, 
took advantage of him, disrespected him, knew he won't reward me like I deserve. That's exactly what he knew. He will not reward me. And is that true? The psalm says, he does not reward us according to our iniquities. If he did, we'd all perish. So he remembered, I got a place to go. Then 20, his father sees him afar off. He got up, came to his father. Still a long way off, his father saw him, meaning he was continually looking for him and waiting for him. And he felt compassion for him, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. Nothing like he might have thought, even though he knew his father was good. I think he probably figured, and rightly so, he deserved for his father to agree with him. Yes, you aren't worthy to even be called my son. I'll make you one of my hired servants, but at least you'll have something to eat. And notice when the father responds to him, he, he, he cuts him off. The son rehearsed a speech a few verses earlier. He only got through in verse 21, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He didn't get the chance to say, just hire me as one of your hired servants. The father cut in on his repentance, having seen sufficient repentance, and he said, get the best robe, put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet. One of the degrading things was to be barefoot. Slaves were barefoot. We're putting shoes on you. We're putting a ring on your finger. You're part of the family. You're back in the family. His repentance here too is clear. We cannot, and of course we live in a country today, we live in a culture seemingly everywhere, of victimology. Everyone's a victim. Nobody's responsible. I mean, nobody's responsible. Um, and you know how far that's gone and the havoc that that wreaks in a culture. We can't ever, ever, ever move away from straight talking, because God's a straight talker, straight talking repentance. Lord, this is nobody's fault but mine. Against you, David said, and you only have I sinned and done this, what do you say? Done this poor choice. No. Done this wickedness in your sight. You got to call it what it is. That's why the father ended, the, ended it in the middle of his confession. I've seen enough. I know you mean it. God's not hard to deal with. I tell you, when we come to the place where we've had it, with being morally insane, you don't have to pray five hours to talk God into forgiving you. He, he meets you way more than halfway. He runs to us like this. Finally, then, there's restoration. Ring on his finger, the, the feast, and so forth. 
and the restoration to his place in the family. And you notice clearly too here, he says, this my son who was dead has become alive again. We can fall away and die, but we can also be restored. God's able to do that. I don't know hearts here. I don't know who, maybe one, I don't know, who needed something that's come from this passage of Scripture. If we're drifted, if we need, God will run to help you. At the first indication, Lord, I want to come home. He'll run the whole distance to meet me and restore me. And I think it's appropriate. Most Lord's Supper, Eucharist, communion rituals have portions of statements of repentance, of acknowledging of sin, and the asking of forgiveness for that we would be qualified to take the Lord's Supper together. While we, in a moment, bow our heads, prepare our hearts for communion, that's a good time for us to talk to God about anything that He's been talking to us about. <clears throat> Let's bow our heads, then, <clears throat> as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. This prayer, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of Thy Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love Thee and worthily magnify Thy holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.